Well, today is uh, Labor Day Sunday. This is Labor Day weekend. I don't know if you know this, but conservative estimates are that in the United States of America, tomorrow we will burn between 40 and 80 million pounds of propane. That's a lot of propane. Some of you are like, I only do charcoal. So, uh, but uh, it is, uh, it's an interesting Sunday because it's one of those Sundays that is viewed uh, as a secular holiday. Uh, but this, uh, this year, uh, I wanted to speak a little bit to it, uh, thinking about what does it mean uh, to understand labor and work? What is the purpose of labor? What is the purpose of work? within our faith? What are, what are the practices of work uh, to you and to me as Christians? And so that's what I'd like to focus on with you this morning. And as we begin, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 20. If you remember from when you were a kid in Sunday school, you'll say that chapter sounds familiar because that's the chapter that the Ten Commandments is in. But I'm only going to read just a few verses. I'm not going to read all of the Ten Commandments. I encourage you to do that as you're able through the week. In the old church and during the revolutionary uh, times here in the United States, it was customary that every Sunday morning when the church began to worship, that they started their worship by reciting together the Ten Commandments. Can you believe that? As a matter of fact, if you go to some old revolutionary uh, era churches, uh, on one side of the uh, pulpit would be the Ten Commandments up on the wall, and on the other side of the pulpit would be the Apostles' Creed. And so uh, we, we've kind of gotten away from the Ten Commandments, um, <laughs> both in church service and in life, I suppose. And I just want to, but I'm only going to focus on one commandment with you this morning, and it is the fourth commandment uh, for us Protestants. The Roman Catholics number them a little differently. Uh, to the Roman Catholics, uh, this is the, uh, I don't know. But for us, it's the fourth. <laughs> Beginning in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But for the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. Pretty much every uh, morning, my wife and I get up at about 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I uh, typically make a cup of coffee and I go sit out on the front porch as Arapahoe Road, which I can see from my front porch, begins to come to life. And every single morning, Monday through Friday, at around 6 p.m., <clears throat> Somebody begins to start their car, and I can hear it. I don't know where they live, but I know it's just a few blocks away. And the reason I know it's the same person is because they have a bad clutch. 
And I just sort of wince as whoever drives that car makes their way out of the neighborhood to Arapahoe Road and begins to head west, changing gears with each scream of that car. And I think to myself, whoever that is, they got to get that fixed. I don't know how much longer that's going to last. But one of the things that I like about it is it confirms my faith and trust in the American worker. That he's up every morning and out of the house at 6, running that clutch as hard as he can to get to work. Now my hope is is he goes to work at 7, not 6, because if it's the case that he's supposed to be at work at 6, I'm not happy with him anymore. (laughs) My dad was an electrician, a working man, blue-collar worker. He always left the house early, too, and he worked all the overtime that he could. He was born in 1928. He was the ninth of ten children. And when he finished the eighth grade, his mother and father, my grandparents, made him quit school and go to work. He left the eastern shore of Maryland when he was but a teenager with my grandfather, and they went to New York City during the building boom after World War II. And as I grew up with this hard, leathery-skinned working man, he would teach me the Bible, and at least the verses he knew. And they all had a similar theme. For example, one of his favorite verses was 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. I know you all know it. <laughs> if anyone doesn't work, Paul says... He should not eat. You can begin to see who my father was. (laughs) Eleanor, our youngest daughter, every single morning for the first three years of her life screamed when I left the house for work. Now, she's a big lover of cheese, and so one of the things that I would do in carrying on the tradition that my father taught me is I said, honey, you like cheese, right? Yes, and well, honey, if I don't go to work, I can't buy you any cheese. (laughs) Now, it never really convinced her. She never really was okay with that. She wanted to uh, find somebody else to buy cheese. She would sometimes say, can't Nana buy the cheese? (laughs) That's the problem with little kids is they think Nana and Grampy provide everything. So every morning as I left, my (laughs) Shauna would have to literally peel Eleanor off of my leg so I could get out of the house, and I'd look back, and there she would be with her tear-stained face up against the glass door, wailing. Don't, don't, don't commiserate with me, commiserate with Shauna. She's the one that had to put up with it. <laughs> Why do we work? That's the question, the first question. The Greek philosopher Aristotle said that the reason we must labor is so that we may also have leisure. He was the last of the three great philosophers that had perhaps more than anyone had the most significant impact on Western civilization. There's Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. That's an order. You can remember that as the word spa. Everybody likes to go to the spa, right? Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Aristotle was the last of the three. Aristotle's understanding of leisure wasn't the same as ours, though. When he talked about leisure, he wasn't thinking about lounging around playing video games, watching movies, or scrolling through social media. No, to Aristotle, the purpose of leisure was not amusement, but happiness, pleasure, which to him 
was focusing on the things that did not necessarily advance our personal ambitions, but was a time to focus and contemplate on things like beauty, truth, a blessed life. At one point, Aristotle even suggests that the best use of our leisure time is study and contemplation. For only one who is free can do such things. So you see, for Aristotle, the purpose of work was to provide the resources necessary so that you and I could spend time thinking. In your notes this morning, I have listed four statements that I hope you will consider through this week, particularly through this weekend, about work and labor. Work is prayer. Now that seems unusual. In the 6th century, as the Roman Empire had already fallen and Europe was descending into what historians call the Dark Ages, disease, poverty, and death were everyday experiences. And knowledge and education were spurned because what was important during the Dark Ages was making it through the day without dying. And that priority trumped everything. And there was a man named Benedict. And Benedict decided to create a community. He called them, are you ready? Congregations. And in these congregations, people would come and they would live and covenant with one another. Where they would preserve the knowledge of the ancients, copy the ancient manuscripts of the Bible, and teach the younger generation the truth of the Christian faith. Today, we call these communities monasteries. Villages would pop up around these communities where Christian life was taught simply. And the essence of Christian faith was this. Prayer, reading, and work. That was the three things that everybody in one of these communities was, in, was expected to do. As a matter of fact, these three pillars became the identity of the church in the Middle Ages. In our scripture today, this verse that I read to you from the Ten Commandments is the fourth commandment. And it's commonly referred to as the commandment where we must rest on the Sabbath day. But that's not really true. That's not what the commandment really seeks to teach us. You see, this verse is an example of a prescriptive verse. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Now, now sometimes the Bible is descriptive. That is, it, is it, it describes how things are, but it doesn't prescribe what we should do. As a matter of fact, every Bible scholar from the far left to the far right uses these two approaches to Scripture in order to understand it in our everyday life. And they, they say this phrase, that the Bible is both descriptive, it describes, and it's prescriptive, that is, it tells us what it expects of us. Now, now you know this. You probably haven't stopped to think about it or contemplate it, but you know it deep in your heart to your very bones. For example, 
We all know that in Bible times, polygamy was a common practice. That is, as a man would have multiple wives, I have no clue why. Does anybody have a spare bedroom tonight? But nowhere in the Bible does the Bible ever prescribe that a man is to have more than one wife. As a matter of fact, what the Bible prescribes, what the Bible tells us that we ought to do, comes from the very creation story in Genesis, where God created one man and one woman and brought them together as husband and wife. Now, you don't need me to interpret that because Jesus interprets that, and he's much bigger authority than I am. And in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus himself says, Have you not heard that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This, brothers and sisters, is prescriptive. That is, it is God's design. Polygamy may have been present in the Old Testament, but it was never prescribed. It was described. Quite the opposite. The Bible says that the plan of God is monogamy, not polygamy. See, you knew that. You didn't need me to teach you that. And here in Exodus chapter 20, as Moses is relaying these Ten Commandments, there is a prescription of what it means to keep the Sabbath holy. Before we can keep the Sabbath day holy, we are to labor and work. Six days we are to labor and work, so the text says. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn there with me right now so that you can look at this verse, because this is significant to understanding this particular verse. You see, there are several words in the Hebrew language that could be translated work. And in this text, the writer actually uses three Hebrew words to talk about work. Now, if you're there with me, six days you shall labor. There's the first word. That word labor in the Hebrew word uh, actually could be better translated occupation. There's another word, and I'm going to skip over the second word and take you to the third one. And it says, and do all your work. Now, Now, the word work there would probably be best translated cultivate. Like you cultivate a garden or cultivate crops, which makes sense because in the ancient world, they were primarily agrarian. So there's, there's, the, there's the two bookends of this text about what it means to work. Our occupation and our cultivation. Sometimes that word cultivation is even translated servitude or to serve. So you have... This, uh, uh, th- th- this work which forms our identity and this work which is required of us by someone else to do. And the text uses a third word that the translators simply translate using the word do. Look at it again. Six days you shall labor, first word, And do, second word, all your work. Now here's the thing about that word do. The word really means create. 
So let's try to read it literally. And Hebrew is really hard to read literally because it's a, it's a very fluid language. Six days you shall be about your occupation and create all of your cultivation. Now that makes it kind of hard to understand, which is why the translators translate it to a, a way of speaking that you and I can understand. You see, what is most significant for me, however, in that phrase isn't the word labor and isn't the word work, but it's the word do. And here's why. That word do in the original language is the same exact word that the writer uses to describe what God does. If you have your Bible, skip down a little bit more. Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. Again, that word made would probably be best translated create. And so here's the powerful meaning under this text that hopefully will revolutionize how you think about what you do the rest of the week. Is the writer is saying that you and I are called to create just as God created. Or more accurately stated, we are to view our work as being joined together with God as God creates. We're joining our labors with the same creative power and work of God himself. You and I are being called to the same work that God is doing. Now that, brothers and sisters, means what you do is holy. No matter what it is. But the commandment also reminds us of something else. Rest is commandment. In order to keep the Sabbath day, we are to work, and then we are to rest, even as God rested. Now, that is, in resting on the Sabbath, just like when we work, we join our work with God's work, so too, this commandment is telling us, when we rest, we're joining our rest with God's rest. Y'all ought to be seeing a theme here, that we're called to join our lives with God's existence and God's reality. The word rest, and this is a, this is a thousand years before Aristotle ever even thought up some of his philosophies. It, it, it doesn't mean to laze around. It literally means to be settled. And what do you do when you're settled? Well, when you're settled, there's a sense of constancy. There's a sense of joining together with the soil, with the surroundings, with the community. That is, we join with God in contemplating and being settled in Him. As we rest with God, this verse again tells us, we are resting with God. And what does God do when God rests? God contemplates all of that which he has created. And the text prescribes what we're to do while we're resting. It's the very first word in this commandment. The very first word in chapter 8. We are 
to remember. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The way we keep God's Sabbath holy is to remember, to remember God's goodness, God's grace, God's nature. You could even suggest that the purpose of rest is to reflect on the creative wonder of God. It is contemplation, not amusement. Now, now there's nothing wrong with amusement. Like anything else, if it's done in moderation, it's perfectly fine. But the call here in Scripture, the prescription here in the Bible, is that we are to be in God's presence, to be settled in God, to focus our minds, our hearts on God's. We are to share in God's creative work, and then we are to remember and reflect on the beauty of who God is, His transcendence, His presence, His omnipresence throughout the universe, that it is in Him, as Paul says, that we live, move, and have our being. You see, the purpose of work, according to the Scriptures, is to glorify God. How would that change your life? How would that change your satisfaction in your job? How would it change what you do? How would it change the place of employment that you work or the organization with which you volunteer if everything you and I did was to the glory of God? Many years ago, one of my neighbors, her husband left her. They were both an older couple. Matter of fact, demographers call this the plight of gray divorce. As a matter of fact, uh, baby boomers, specifically born between 1946 and 1954, are divorcing at a more significant rate than any other demographic. Those of you who are over 50 are harder to keep married than any. As a matter of fact, the lowest divorce rate is with millennials. 109% increase in divorce rate among baby boomers. And my neighbor was a victim of it. Her husband just up one day and decided that he didn't want to be married anymore, and he left. And because she wasn't able to do some of the things that uh, he had done, she asked me if I would mow her lawn until her house sold. For two summers, I had to mow that lawn which does not give me much hope for my own house. (laughs) Now, I need to tell you, I didn't mind it for the first couple of weeks. But when the weeks turned into months, and the months turned into years, I got irritated. Until one day. I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit. It might have been Aristotle's teachings. It might have been the Ten Commandments. But this is what I did. I told myself that I wasn't mowing her lawn I was mowing God's lawn. And that changed everything because when I mowed her lawn, when I got done and I'd look at the weeds around her house, I'm like, ah, that'll wait till next week. But when I was mowing God's lawn, I had a weed eat every single week. And you know what? It literally changed my attitude about that work. It wasn't as irritating. Even though it was a mundane thing that I had to do, when I was doing it, I was glorifying God. And that changed not only my own understanding of the task at hand, but my relationship with her. Whatever your occupation, whatever your creative work, whatever you cultivate, wherever you serve, 
do everything to the glory of God. Now, the product of work, according to the Bible, is to help those in need. Wait a minute, preacher. you just gone to meddling. Because most of us have this idea that what we worked for is ours. Now, I already told you about my dad, how he took pride in his work, how he had a couple of favorite Bible verses. I told you about 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. You won't forget that one. He had another favorite one. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Do you know most people stop there? They don't pay attention that there's not a period there, there's a comma. So let me read you what comes after the comma. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What a transformational verse. That when the Spirit comes upon even a thief, they go from stealing to working so that they can share. My dad was a generous man. He couldn't help himself. Now, he'd complain about it privately. But if anyone ever needed any money, he'd pull out his wallet and give it to him. I'm not sure he really enjoyed it, but he did it. I decided that I was going to live my life differently. So when I give my money away, I try to enjoy it. Don't I, Shauna? <laughs> She's had to cut my allowance because I always wind up giving it away to somebody. You know what? I've already told you when I first came here that Shauna and I have covenanted with you that we will tithe to this congregation. That is, is everything you pay me, I'm going to give you 10% of it back. But we support other things, too. It's just how we live life. Our financial planner told us several years ago, you've got to stop giving this much, you're going to get audited. Because people won't believe it. And I said, bring it on. That way I can school the IRS auditor why he's not giving as much as we're giving because we've got all the receipts. <laughs> I remember one time when I was in seminary, I may have already shared this story with you, but I felt the need to give $100 to a ministry that worked with college students. Now, I was only making $200 a week, and I was working three jobs to do it at the time. So $100 was a, was a significant amount of money to me. It's a significant amount of money to me now. But I remember writing the check. I remember taking it to the seminary post office, and I remember dropping it in the mail slot. And then I went to my mailbox, did the combination, opened it up, and inside was a card from a dear, sweet, saint, sainted lady of the church in which I grew up. I opened the card, and no lie, in the card was a check for $100. You and I cannot outgive God. He blesses us so that he can bless others through us. The New Testament talks of a work through which came the greatest blessings, and scholars call it the work of Christ. And through the work of Christ, generally used to describe his crucifixion, the product of his work was the redemption of the world. As God blessed you and me through the work of Christ, consider how our work is the conduit through which Christ blesses the church your neighbors, this world. I want to end today with a quote that is attributed to Martin Luther, a hero of the Protestant Reformation. Here it is. The Christian shoemaker 
does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Now, we're not sure Luther really said this. But actually, it seems like pretty good advice to me. Work. Rest. Glorify God so that God can be generous through you. Our Father, we offer to you as our sacrifice all of our labors. Not only the fruit of our labors, but the labor itself. And not just the labor itself, but our attitude as we labor. For it is for you that we work. It is for your glory. It is so that we can be grounded in prayer. It is so others will be blessed through us. We covenant with you this day to fulfill the prescription of your commandment to remember and to rest in you even as we work for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.